How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 173. <laughs> this guy whipped his head back. What's that meme of that duck? Where he throws his head back and he's like, ah, tree rocks! <laughs> that one. That one. That yeah. was good. That was I it. like uh, it. How are you, Zeke? Yeah, good. Yeah, good. Oh, uh, oh good. Good to uh, hear it. Yeah, no. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's been a week. Another week. It has. Um, as opposed to as last week's episode. Now it's this week's episode. No, it's, it's honestly, it's been a very crazy week. I'm obviously far more time on my hands. I've actually watched a little bit. Ooh, very good. Um, I'm glad one of us has had time this <laughs> past week. Oh, um, you know I'm good talking about in the career section. You just know it. You know it. Yes. You know yes, it. No, you can. Um, but before we get there, yeah, I know. we normally kick off yeah. with a fun trivia fact. That is true. From uh, the film of the week, which is almost famous mm. for our 2000s countdown through the decade retrospective. Jake, do you have a fun fact for me? I do. So, this film that you've just named, Almost Famous, wasn't always called Almost Famous. In fact, as far as I believe, that was actually quite late in the process that title came. Mm. And if you watch the opening credits, of course, there's a little handwriting thing that's going on there. You can actually see William write the word Untitled, which was meant to be the original name of this film. But, of course, DreamWorks were like, nah, bruh, we're not having any of that. <laughs> so, it was changed to Almost Famous. Mm. Interesting. Well, tying in sort of to your fact, obviously this film centers around, i.e. being almost famous, but also more in the context of sort of being an aspiring uh, music journalist Mm -hmm. or being in and around artistic revolutions. And obviously, um, like I said, it's about being around the music industry. Music's a very heavy part. The average... yes. Uh, for songs in a in an average production of this scale would be about 1.5 million to buy the rights to different songs and stuff. That, like, the, like the budget for it, I Yeah, the imagine, budget. Yeah. This dropped a mean 3.5 million. Ooh. So music with over Jeez. 50 songs, popular songs, being credited by the end of the film. So yeah, sort of gives you an idea of what we're going to be going into later in the show. Yeah, because like even right off the get-go, you got the Chipmunks. I was like, ooh, this is a very interesting like way to open it. And then, yeah, you got like Bowie, I guess, covers. and mm-hmm. Yeah, you got all sorts of things. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah. But it makes sense for a film like this. Yeah. To so <laughs> blow its budget on the music. I like it. Jake, I'm t- going to take a guess, mm. obviously, poster yes. behind me. I would have to say this film would be on that poster. It's actually not. That is unbelievable. It, the film is not... On the 1100 poster of films you should watch before you die. I was shocked by this. Offensive. Because I, I only saw this film today for the first time, believe mm-hmm. it or not. I know you, you've you been a huge, gigantic fan of this film for a long time. Um, but I still understand the reputation this film has. Yep. You know, from Cameron Crowe. And, and I looked at the poster. I, was, I had to do... I had to check a few times. I was, like, so sure. I was like, it was, it's got to be on here. Would it be on yours? Oh, a thousand percent it would be. I, I definitely think it belongs on the poster, but we will, I guess we'll elaborate later in the show, Z. Got to stick around, folks. Yeah. Not even, on the not even debatable. No, not at all. How are you? Sickening. Sickening. Well, Jake, let's mm. just get it. Let's just rip the band-aid. Have you watched anything yet? I like these in the band-aid. Week. Very good. Very good. I saw one film in the last week. Yes. I did. Now, we talked about it last week. We were hoping to go see Petite Maman together. Yeah. Which, of course, is uh, Celine. I believe it's Skamaya. Siyama. Siyama, yeah. I, uh, of course, the director of Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which I personally think is an absolute goddamn masterpiece. We both talked about it mm-hmm. very, very highly 
uh, a yeah. while ago, episode 77. 70-something, yeah. I'm not too sure. But yeah, a while ago. It was, it was, I think it was right after our first Countdown Through the Decades uh, challenge. I think you're correct. So um, it might have actually been in the 80s, if that's the case. Yeah, and yeah. we loved it. Yeah, we loved it. it was absolutely excellent. So I was very excited to see this film. Now, I'm sad I didn't see it with you. That's but okay. it, I had the next best thing because they were doing a Mother's Day screening. And, of course, I was running around like a like a headless chicken this past weekend. I was trying to think of, you know, it's like, I want to watch at least something for the podcast. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to take my mum to watch Petite Maman, the Mother's Day afternoon tea screening. Episode 77. 77. Oh, you're onto it. I love it. Yeah, I would have guessed way later than that. Fair enough. Fair enough. The... Oh, you know what it is? Because we did E.T. in the 80s, mm-hmm. but E.T. was not part of the countdown. That's what threw me off. That makes sense now. Um, I am so glad I brought my mum to this film because it is, without fault, without irony, the perfect Mother's Day movie. It is the sweetest little film. And when I say little, I'm not exaggerating. The film is barely 72 minutes long. Wow. It is very short. It I can count the number of locations and characters on one hand. It is. I'm shocked that she, not not to say that Portrait made a billion dollars at the box office, mm-hmm. but for a film of that like, I'm just gonna say perfection, and on high praise, I'm surprised that she decided to actually go smaller with yep. her next film, which is really interesting. But I think it works because of it. Uh, the story is essentially about these uh, two eight year old girls who form a bond. I really don't want to go more into the details about um, the intergenerational relationships between you know, daughters, mothers, and, and grandmothers as well, because that all ties in together. I really don't want to touch the story in this because I was... there. There's something so special about almost like an invisible twist in the narrative and the actual presentation of the film. The film... And it's not unlike Portrait. Portrait's very similar. There's no non-diegetic music. It's very deliberate with when it comes in with music. The editing and, and the stylism, and it's all very grounded and straightforward there's no fancy editing tricks it's you know it's it's very reliant on performances and i was thinking of the dogma 95 movement which we talked about a lot now vintenberg director's commentary for yes. the hunt and for another round and films like that i was actively thinking that i was like man she really does make like dogma 95 films with the exception of obviously her being credited mm. for those films um now with all that in mind there's sort of a a realization as the story plays out of Oh my god. This is almost like a sci-fi movie. <laughs> I won't in any way, shape, or form elaborate to what I'm talking about. Yeah. But that was just such a wonderful surprise of like, oh my god, she's making a film that's this metaphorical and this almost surreal while using very straightforward, straight laced filmmaking tools, almost like a Dogma ninety five movement film. I was just very pleasantly surprised by that. Um, see now now that I've sort of committed to my non-spoiler review there's things I want to say that I can't really say but um, I thought I don't think it's as perfect as Portrait it's got okay. it's Portrait trademarks like I said with very deliberate careful use of music um, the, literally the one time they use music it actually reminded me of Before Sunrise a little bit where you have um, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delphi listening to the thing mm-hmm. um, in the record store and they're sort of stealing looks at each other and then as it sort of transitions and L cut into the next scene, the music is still playing. And it's almost like the music's carrying the heightened emotion that the characters are feeling into the scene where the music's not necessarily diegetic anymore. 
And it's a very, very similar trick that Celine does in this film for the one time that she uses the yeah. music. And it's just so effective. Um, and again, the relationship between the two girls and sort of the realization of what the relationship actually is is just really sweet and caring and innocent. I think the movie might be have a G rating. It's just super, yeah. it's super sweet. It's super nice. The one thing that I really caught, I didn't... If I rewatch Portrait with this in mind, I'll probably notice it more. But her use of color, especially in this film, identifying the two girls by blues and reds and how they're very distinct. I think they're actually twins in real life. And mm. I don't think they've started anything else. And that was something that I was like, oh, that kind of makes sense within the realms of the story. But you almost have to rely on the color scheme of their clothes to even identify which which uh, which characters which, which I thought was really funny. That's truly unique. Yeah, um, but I thought it was a, a wonderful, beautiful little film. I really wanted to catch the Doctor Strange, uh, Mad Multiverse Madness, what the sequel, whatever it was, and um, why? I, hmm? Why? <laughs> well, I guess I found out why without even thinking. I was going through Letterboxd. And I clicked on the Doctor Strange. I'm like, I'm curious because I'm hearing very mixed things. Mm-hmm. It's like friend of the show, Jack Bett, didn't even like it. I was like, Jack didn't even like an MCU film? What's going on? That is... Something's going <laughs> That might as well be in the multiverse. <laughs> exactly. It's a Jack from... A, it's a different variant. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like... Is he got a goatee? Like? I'm very, yeah, I know. Yeah, he's got an evil goatee. I, yeah, I'm hearing such mixed things about this film. I'm hearing it's just like complete junk. Maybe it's being compared to everything everywhere to be fair. But the thing that I felt, I have to mention this, when I went in the letterbox theme, I looked at the cast. I was like, I don't care anymore. What, what are the cameos? And I saw some of the cameos and instead of being excited, I was just like, oh, cool. Like, my, I actually have much less inclination to watch this movie now that I just read who's in it. Mm. I was like, oh, cool. I don't care anymore. Yeah, look, three point. Also, a Sam Raimi film. So Jack Bet not liking a Sam Raimi film. Just, oh yeah, that extra points. Of that's what probably the that's hell? that's yeah. the real multi. Yeah. <laughs> three point five for immediately out of the gates is not good for an MCU film. Yeah, on Letterbox because normally the f- opening part is. Five, yeah, it's usually well over. Us. Yeah, it's usually well over four. The average. I mean, Spider Man No Way Home still well over four. All the all the shows are still over four. Most people who log those shows are the big Marvel fans. are going to give it a high score. So I'm not surprised by the high averages. But the fact that Doctor Strange doesn't have an overtly high average... I think the first Doctor Strange has a better score than it. Yeah. So it's interesting. And I just wanted to point that out. It's like literally... I, you said, why? Why do I want to see this? It's like, oh, I guess I was curious about the cameos. And now that I know what they are, I don't even need to like see the movie. Yeah. I think it's one of those <laughs> things that... You know, I think we've touched on it multiple over the multiple different m- multiple different Spider-Mans we've done on the, even those. But yeah, sort of like now. I feel like it's fighting a losing battle trying to rationalize this stuff because if I can see, I see here and go, oh, I don't like this film because it's not hitting beats or it's actually out of timing and things don't really make sense and people really rely on cool comic book mm. moments to kind of carry the the weight of how what makes a good film. Yep. And my points are often fallen flat with people when I'm trying to explain that to them because they go, oh, well, you're just a film like snob or a film nerd, so you're you're not looking, you're just looking at it like that. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm measuring everything by the same scale. So it's like... Yeah, exactly. And I, there are really good superhero films out there that do something different. Yeah. And it's like, you know, like, I love... Uh, what's, what's, what's the last? Logan. I love Logan. Yeah, yeah. 
And, you know, it's like even like shows like that have come out in the last year. I love The Boys. I love what they've done, they've, they've done with yeah. The Boys. And I love what they've done with uh, Invincible and stuff like that. So it, don't say... I don't, I'm not... The, the, I'm, the thing about that criticism to you, as in, like, oh, you're just a film snob, is like, well, they're not listening to your argument. No. They're just like, oh, well... The fact that I get to I, see I, three Spider Men on screen, and that's enough to give me five. That hand me five <laughs> stars, please. It's like no, hand me five stars. I'm not going to. I liked Garfield in it, but why? Why is it okay? Why do Marvel films like that get a pass? Yet Jared Leto is a vampire thing, even though that movie is probably astronomically worse than the Spider Man movie. Not saying it's not, but it's okay to pan on that. Sure. No, I get you completely. Or Morbius. Yeah. But it's we can't put that under the same critical like binoculars. There are great MCU films, but there's only maybe two or three really great ones. Yeah, and then there's a there's a gulf between that and then that next tier, and then there's some really bad ones. Yeah, yeah. But no, mostly- I think that's fair. And it's like it was spi- like I I was the most excited person out of any of us to see like that Spider Man movie, and 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 I watched it and I was like, okay, there's some very clear faults i can admit that and even my my letterbox review was massive because i needed to really explain mm. you know from my perspective of like okay it's doing this thing and it's baiting on nostalgia yeah. but as long as you don't mind what it's sacrificing in order to do that then it's fine to like this film and i like this film yeah too. and obviously like this doctor strange film is fresh out so we won't talk about the spoilers that you've just went and seen yeah. on the internet well it's literally just cameos it's like I having not seen the film I'm like oh cool Doctor Strange goes through multiple random realities which I'm reading apparently mm. like just sort of bland and don't look all that different from each other and he probably like oh here's this famous actor that people on Reddit have begging to, for him to show up cool next scene like has nothing to do with the plot yeah so it's like I can already tell you how fleeting these cameos are, having only just read that they but exist. Just, like, it's one of those things, like, that shouldn't, that shouldn't carry, like, oh, well, now just hand us a four or five-star rating. It's like, no, because it's, these sort of, the, my thing has always been, I've been of that mantra that they've had, they have so many of them now that it's like, this money could be going elsewhere. We could be exploring different elements of sci-fi and original sure. content, but we don't push, or even completely different superhero stuff not not even tied to an mcu content but like we could be getting more everything everywhere's yeah we could be (laughs) and that film costs astronomically less money to make yeah astronomically less money i'm just that's why i'm like yeah look i don't want to i'll watch it when it's on disney plus in like two months sure and i haven't even i haven't watched what shang chi and the eternals which have been sitting on there for ages yeah which are both like fine yeah (laughs) I'll stand by my point. I, I think they're more like MCU should just slowly move towards the six episode miniseries formula because it works in Hawkeye. Hawkeye becomes a very consumable, well, uh, what, enjoyable what series. What works with Hawkeye? I can't believe we're talking about the MCU again. That's, <laughs> I just wanted to make that one comment we got onto it. But um, Hawkeye, because the stakes are low. Yeah. And it's such a like sort of reserved, out of place story. And I read after the fact like, oh, people thought Spider-Man was going to show up in the last episode. And I was like, aren't we watching it for the story? Everything has to have a gimmick now. Even As much as I love the majority of WandaVision, ultimately the reason we all enjoyed it, it was a gimmick of, oh, it's a different show every week. It's not to do really with the story. Spider-Man, that was a gimmick of like, oh, look, all our favorite yeah. heroes are back. Doctor Strange is a gimmick because, oh, look at these Reddit-based well, it's just, cameos. It's just a continuation of what if, isn't it? 
Like yeah, the, literally the What If series. It's, it's like, all what? part of that. It's all again. There's very few MCU properties in the last few years that have been advanced by story. When we went to watch Endgame, I went into Infinity Ward, um, super pessimistic about the whole thing. I'm like, oh, there's going to be no plot. It's all going to be bloody gibberish and gibberish. And I walked out being like, wow, oh my god, I generally want to see how the story progresses in the next yeah. film. And that was the last time I felt that with the MCU. Yeah. Now it's all gimmicks. Uh, well, anyway, what, what have you watched, Zeke? <laughs> well, to be honest, I've only caught one movie, but I'll, I'll quickly touch on it because obviously we did um, Robert Zemeckis a couple of weeks ago for our director's corner. Mm. Did actually manage to catch Who Framed Robert, Roger Rabbit. Ah, very and nice. And if we want to talk about, although this was in the 80s, an innovative idea that allowed, you know, and obviously because of the success commercially and critically that Roger Rabbit had at the time, mm. led to quite a few of those cartoons and live action interactive uh things I, I remember i going to my the local blockbuster down mm. the road from here and looney tunes back in uh, action was one of the most cons- i think we must have rented that more times than any other film have we never talked about we must have went to the same blockbuster yeah. every week that's amazing yeah because we live so close yeah it's crazy like that one it was, <laughs> it was so crazy the two films i probably rented the most or three i can think off the top of my head Yu-Gi-Oh the movie <laughs> gets funnier Looney Tunes back in action yep and the live action Thunderbirds film oh. <laughs> which is probably I, could, I see you doing that though that yeah. makes sense for you yeah so yeah. they're the three films I remember renting <laughs> the most and yeah it's like obviously I actually think that Looney Tunes back in action film is actually pretty funny I actually like Brendan I like Brendan Fraser in that early 2000s kind of campy fun mummy-esque yeah performance um, it's where he does his best work. And to be honest, it's like who framed Roger Rabbit rabbit was going for, it was quite honestly, it's probably the darkest one out of all of them. Um, mm. it's quite actually inappropriate. I walks a very weird thing. Cause it's sort of like kind of got the back to the future undertone of sort of malice and darkness, but it probably goes that next step further. That it's okay. like, okay, I think we are actually pushing PG 13 on this one. Like really right. pushing, like, I don't know if I'd, there's like sexualization of cartoons which is pretty widely known uh, yeah yeah it's a very classic noir in the sense that the man the the male leads like a drunk and it's almost like it's honestly to at some points it's like a softer blade runner like in it's okay it's like a way softer <laughs> it's probably like 50 percent blade runner but it's okay. like there's there are bits and i was like well this is a bit edgy for a funny though and revolutionary for the time and i love sure. the the um, you know we sort of talk about how like zemeckis and and even spielberg at least in the last decade have sort of kind of just become very passive and like well over cgi'd overused it yes. or over over yeah, reliance on it yeah over reliance can inherently lazy whereas their innovations in the 80s with things like et or who framed Roger rabbit it's sort of like it was like they're at they were still dabbling in that stuff back then or whatever the yeah rel- like tron and stuff yeah in terms of the cg experiments yeah. but that really sticks out that's the difference tron. just hate it i don't know Ooh, get- i need that that's my favorite line in it's tron. the honestly it's the writing in <laughs> tron it's nothing to do with the it's nothing to do with the, the i actually love all the cg stuff the writing's pathetic mm. though do not tell me the writing and that is warranted um legacy has better writing um <laughs> Which is saying I haven't seen Legacy. Um, no, it's it's one of those things that it's <laughs> like, 
it, honestly, it's very entertaining. Um, I would 100% recommend it. We might do it on the show at some point. Uh, it's a yeah, lot of fun. Sure. It's crazy. One of the funniest things, you know, not to bring it back to Disney, but it always comes back to Disney. Yeah, everything comes back to Disney. Yeah. Um, amazing I just, I just, how... I made that realization today that all five Avatar films are now going to be owned by Disney. Well, that's crazy. Yeah. To be honest, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is kind of like the 80s version of Ready Player One. But instead of all okay. these digital, like all of these prop, it's the right. same it's, level it's of like IP, cartoons, but it's cartoon right. IP. Yep. So it's like they got like all the permission from all the Disney and all the permission from Warner Bros. Like they had everything. That's awesome. In it. Like everyone in it. There was cami. Like there was literal. There's like literal scenes with Donald Duck playing with Daffy Duck, <laughs> like on the pianos, and you're sort of sitting there going, "That's we you know that would not happen today. They would. Right. It would not happen. Like." <laughs> Think of how rigorous it was to get Spider-Man in the MCU. Yeah. Like, how rigorous those negotiations were. So, to try and get the full lineup, just fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, really impressive. That's the only film I caught. I wrapped up How I Met Your Father. Don't need to say anything. Listen to me last week to yep. rant about it. <laughs> Admittedly, the 10th episode was the best episode in the 10-episode miniseries, sitcom miniseries. Nah. <laughs> um that's pathetic. Don't renew it for a season two. Just don't waste your time. Like, just don't. They're going to, and it's going to hurt. Um, <laughs> and I'll spoil that. Kobe Smulders rocks up in the last episode. Oh, spoiler alert. And it's probably the best scene in the, the show, but it really goes to show you could be watching nine seasons of the significantly better show on the same platform. But I had a, I had a bit more time on Apple. Now, yeah, okay, yeah, which is funny because I just got rid of my Apple. I was TV. about to say, you know, how we love to bash Apple TV. Oh, this, I love to bash Apple TV. Well, I'm going to bash Apple TV. Yeah, let's go. So I'm really excited <laughs> to talk about the show because, admittedly, I have nothing but positive things to say about the show I watch. Mm. I watch Ted Lasso. Oh, Stephen loves this show. I love this show. So I'm two and a half seasons in. Oh, nice. so I'm halfway through season two. There's two seasons. Okay. So I've got, but this is where I, so I'm up to episode four, right? I've got my smart TV. Yep. Normally was up until, this, this is not, where it gets this weird. This is not so smart, the TV. This is where it gets weird, Jake. So <laughs> I'm pretty used to the smart TV not registering that, like say I'll watch nine episodes of something and yep. it'll be like, say I watch from season one, episode one to nine. But then my TV goes, oh, you only watched up to episode four. So if I quick click, oh, it'll click annoying. jump to four. It's annoying, but I'm used to it on every platform. Apple TV just does, loves to be the, that little bit worse than everything else. <laughs> and this is why. <laughs> That's I, a great quote. <laughs> because I get to, apparently my TV goes, we're up to season one, episode nine. And of course I go through, watch episode 10, one, two, three, four. Yeah. Get to the end of four and I'm like, okay, five. Five doesn't play. It won't let me go on to season two, episode five. And I go, well, that's weird. Turns out, and I cannot fathom this, but on my smart TV, it's hiding episodes that are too far ahead. So how do I... Oh. So, like, I can't see, like, the thumbnails for season two, episode five to 12. Sure. Because it's hiding it from me because it doesn't want to spoil it. But then I also can't access it. What the... What? Yeah. And then I end up going on my tablet today, get Lucinda to log me into that, and I can see every episode. So for some reason, just on my TV, 
<laughs> it's hiding episodes that I can't even click on. Uh, so I reset all the data on it. Yeah. And that's even worse now. It's put me back at episode one to six in season one. So <laughs> I'm sitting there going, like, I actually can't watch these episodes. It's like you've corrupted a save file on your game and now, now it sends you way back but to the start. You know what the weirdest part is? I go onto other shows on Apple TV. Same thing. It hides past like episode four if it's a mini series or episode. I'm like, <laughs> what platform? And I'm like, and I'm like Googling Apple it. And apparently TV I look on the Plus. Apple TV forum. This is a common thing. This is yeah. like they've decided to code it. So you have to, basically what it is, it's not about for you, it's for them. It's so you binge every <laughs> episode. It's not about you, it's about them. Because it is. It's, you, they're <laughs> making you, they're forcing you to binge every episode, like, effectively. So you go have to go, you can't just pick up and drop off. So I can't go to your house, watch three episodes, come over to my house and pick up where I left off. No, no. I got to watch every one of That's those episodes. That's the most bizarre thing user. I've ever heard. And it's like it's on the forums. Apparently, other like other TVs are experiencing. Apple this. sucks. It sucks. Apple sucks. Now onto the show. The show <laughs> is great. Good. Very good. It's great, and I'll tell you why it's great. One, it has that perfect amalgamation of obviously it's a sports comedy. Um, it obviously doesn't. It does enter a little bit on the pitch, but to be honest, it focuses more on the comedy. Side, I think Jason Sudeikis is a very funny man. Um, I think he's always hit his marks pretty well. Him and Jason Bateman, I've always found are kind of interchangeable to me um, <laughs> in their performances and right. nuances. But I really like... Actually, what I like about the show is it's sort of a show that everyone needs. And the reason I think people gravitate to a show like this is because it's so quaint. You know, you're talking about Petite Maman. It's quaint. It's nice. It's cute. It's wholesome. Yeah, it's yeah. got that real undertone. It's got heart. And I think it's one of those things that you can't help but get. You fall in love with the characters because the comedy hits. It's entertaining. It's like, like it plays into the stupid American stereotype for show out of water stuff a little early. And then you're like, okay, but it builds up steam and it builds up the game. It has that level of quaintness to it. Mm. Um, and it's not soft. Like, obviously, there's swear word. Like, it's MA, I think, because it's, like, they allowed to, like, use every swear word under the under the sun. So, it's sort of, like, then that helps because it, it's just funny. Like, and I think the cast is amazing. And I remember watching them when they won the, was it the... Did they win, like, the Comedy Emmy? Or? Yeah, they did. And okay. they went up there and they were just blown away by it. Like, they were so humbled by it. And you could tell because it honestly feels like a show. It's I think it's co-written by Jason today because it really feels more like right. a labor of love kind of show. Sure, it's fantastic. Yeah. To be honest, it would one hundred percent people encourage people to watch it because I tell you, write comedy in the the twenty first century like perfectly. Like it's it's one of those things when I, it fits kind of probably into the same. I, I found it really accurate. The ending of season one almost felt to me like the end of Goon, which is a one of my oh, like highly regarded sort of sport f- comedy films. Very mm. similar, actually style of comedy in my opinion maybe a little bit more americanized brash but i would put them in the same sort of category like um in the way that they handle stuff like retirement and players and but it it's so nice to watch a show like that that's pure like purely original in thought and isn't trying to piggyback off a franchise like the other show i was talking about and Mm. and just really own like its craft so yeah um, awesome. That's uh, that's pretty much all I've caught. Resounding 
resounding love for Ted Lasso. I love it. Good stuff. So that's it for the week? That's it for me. Beautiful. Well, I got to just talk about... Well, the reason I didn't watch much in the last week, I got to talk about the the, the VR stuff that I've been working. Of course, that's sort of my full-time job now. I don't even know if I've even talked about it on the podcast that much. But I basically learned how to be... I had to learn how to become a Unity game developer in the last week. (laughs) Just to progress... With that, because there's a video content which I've obviously over the last year have learned to master. I actually felt weird because I had to write my bio the other day. Yeah. Um, for like all the website stuff that's coming through, and I and I wrote like, oh, um, Jake is a filmmaker who specializes in VR and 360, and I'm like, oh, that feels weird to type, <laughs> but I guess it is accurate because I've just spent a year learning yeah. <laughs> how to do it, which is crazy. Um, but basically we needed to rewrite the app to increase the security for when we actually send product out to clients Mm -hmm. and you know talk to headjack and they referred us to the sdk i was like oh so we don't need to pay a fee or anything for increased security they're just like oh here's the code here's how you change it here's the sdk um taking my jacket off because it's getting hot in here it is getting hot in here but it's like it's hot from this story because the rage is about to come oh exactly no i won't do rage it's i i just i was very stressed the last few days because i knew i really wanted to get it done before today hot under the hood exactly jacket and it was finally i want to thank want to thank my mate luke who uh, is a bit of a uni developer who sort of knows his way around it Mm -hmm. he helped me actually find out exactly where to put this code that i needed to and um, eventually got it all working in that. But it just, you know, in this in this uh, film sort of career that we take on, sometimes you have to do all sorts of weird things like video game development and, and learning how to do code and C sharp and all that, absolutely all that junk. But um, I just had to rant about it because it was it was driving me insane. But like I said, I was able to get Petit Maman in for Mother's well, Day. This is what that part of the show is for. Exactly. There you go. Yeah, I'm stuff. just happy to be watching stuff again. Oh, it must. It's good, eh? Because you're 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 time. You got the time now. Thinking of stuff to watch, it's time to move into our film of the week, the latest in our countdown through mm. the decade retrospective. We moved to the two thousands. Jake, what were the two films? Who won? And what are we watching? Of course, the film that lost was Little Miss Sunshine, which hey, I think I think totally represents the two thousands in its own way. But uh, I think in terms of widely renowned, I think we're gonna stick with. This week's Almost Famous. From Cameron Crowe, writer-director of Jerry Maguire. If you're going to be a true journalist, you cannot make friends with the rock star. Just make us look cool. God, it's going to get ugly, man. They're going to buy you drinks. Don't take drugs! They're going to fly you places for free. It's Bowie! You're going to meet girls. We are not groupies. We don't have intercourse with these guys. Just blowjobs, and that's it. Amen. On the road with the band. Your mom called. Rock stars have kidnapped my son. Spirits run high. There's acid in the beer that's in the red cups. How do you know when it's kicked in? I am a golden god! Innocence runs wild. Let's deflower the kid. We need this story in four days. Your time has come. And there's more to write home about. Can you speak with William, please? Is this Marianne with the pot? Then the music. What do you love about music? To begin with? Everything. We're gonna 
good time. If something should happen, maybe I never said this enough. I love all of you. I slept with Martin Dick. I did too. Me too. Don't you have any regular friends? Famous people are just more interesting. In 1973, 15-year-old William Miller's unbashed love of music and aspiration to become a rock journalist lands him an assignment from Rolling Stone magazine to interview and tour with an up-and-coming band, Stillwater. So I believe part semi-autobiographical from Cameron Crowe himself on his young days. Yeah, look. This is uh and to be honest it's, it really is funny um it really uh, is funny well it's it's I I I don't know where to start with this film sure, I think I just yeah. probably should just say my labor of love to this film I watched the film at I think around 15 so mm. um and have grown up with a vast love for 70s music still now probably is my like go to and I think it's one of those things you grow up with that sort of music around you when you've got you know I've got older parents and and growing around that music you either embrace it and it becomes part of your identity or you reject it and you create you craft your own identity and there's not a wrong or right answer but mm. I definitely think I was more an embracer than a than a create like fashioned my own taste. Sure. Um, in fact, I get constantly told I'm basically just an old man in a young person's body. <laughs> so <laughs> um, I think this film i think we nailed it on the head at the start of the show it's like pta well from a style and aesthetic it's pta meets uh linklater yeah i think i think we said that before we started recording yes yeah no but i definitely got pta vibes it might be because of of, uh, philip simmel hoffman of course might have been a touch of that but even just like the pacing and like the odyssey feeling to to the journey and obviously when it where it takes place and i got a bit of pta vibes from it um which, of course, Boogie Nights, I also got Scorsese advice from that. But I think what really stuck out for me, first off, I think this might actually be one of the greatest coming-of-age films of all time. It, it, it's like quintessentially ticks all those boxes. And like you watching it around the same age as, as William in the show, or in the film, I should say, um, this idea of, of like a young person with this idealistic love for this this craft and for the music and actually being involved in that industry and what it's actually like and hang out with people that are older than him but not too much older than him and it's never like uncool and it's never weird and um he's just like embraced into that world but i mean there's great complicated relationships between those but as a coming of age film i think that is like the perfect checkbox for how to show that um as well as obviously his mum being quite overbearing and worried about him going off into this world and then he has his own value system that's sort of challenged in lots of little ways with a Valium system of this dying rock and roll. Well, not not a dying rock and roll band, but a rock and roll band in a dying, supposedly dying age. Yeah. Because it's 1973. Dying age, uh, evolving industry. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and I think that that's a really interesting... So there, are, it's, a, it's a movie of crossroads, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think... I think I, I said this in a message to you, but it sort of is like, it's the fairy tale meets reality. It has that fantastical nature to it, but it never leaves the realm of unattainability or mm. believability because, and I think this film is paired so well 
although a couple of years before, but still because of its product of time ideologies, like Apollo ten and a half. Like oh, you take yeah. the understandings and the 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 deconstruction of the nineteen sixty nine. And, you know, we're in 1973, so we're not that far removed. In fact, the start of this film takes place four years earlier in... 19... Yeah, in 1969, yeah. So, um, it's one of those things that um, we're sort of getting... We, You know, you take something like that going into this film, Jake, and, and even other, like, things. The freedom a teenager had in the 70s is... <laughs> Is, is drastic. I mean, yeah. Linklater does it with Dazed and Confused. Very similar um, exploration there or something like Everybody Wants Some. Um, and even to some extent by the end of Boyhood. So I think you hit the nail on the head. This is one of the best coming of age. Almost one of the best coming of age um, films, not only from a masculine point of view, but from a feminine point of view. It's a more egalitarian mm. nature because, you know, we follow... Kate Hudson's Penny Lane mm. and sort of her Penny Lane her journey through discovering a sense of maturity obviously being a little older than that. like you said it's it's interesting the ages in this film because you know we've got 15 year old William Miller who turns 16 and you know, Penny Lane who we assume is like 19 ambiguous, 20 yeah I think she was 19 or 20 when they shot it yeah I did look up her age because I was curious and obviously the, the members of Stillwater who are in like they're sort of mid 20s you're assuming so Sure. Like early mid twenties. So it's almost like a, a someone in primary school, or elementary school, whatever you want to call it, like joining the high school team. Like there is a mm. big enough gap, but it, again, it's never like uncool. I think the film almost very much distinguishes the differences between cool and uncool, or smart and coolness mm-hmm. with drugs. And I think I think that's very intentional because of the amount of times they nail that idea of don't do drugs, don't do drugs, don't yeah. do drugs. I mean, I, yeah. but all the pieces line up perfectly. I mean, William is, you know, at first we find out how proficiently smart he is. Like, he's yep. reciting his literature analysis of To Kill a Mockingbird to his mother. Mm. We clearly see this. I think the reason I identify, I honestly, like, why this film resonated to me on a more personal level is, like, the relationship he has with his mum is very similar to my relationship I have with my mum. Right, yeah. Like, I'm a academically very sound person, but probably at times, especially in more like early adolescent years, felt suffocated by expectation because mm. I had an older sibling that wasn't living up to certain things at certain times, or in my case, a younger sibling that was sort of... And it's one of those things that you you really do bring your own context to a film. And sure, yeah. I love that dynamic by nature and the fact that you know he's really intelligent, the fact he's two years ahead of the school yeah. system. Yeah, well, the thing I really picked up on if it was interesting is he's he doesn't know his own age he's associating the age that he's meant to be with the boys around him in the schooling system and what grade he's in mm. so it's not a revelation that he's in the wrong grade it's a revelation that he's not the right age mm. which i thought was really interesting i think it's part of the sheltering that Hello. that friend <laughs> that francis mcdormand one of the most sort of quotable has- films Oh, it really? I, I know. When I was watching, I was like, "This is really, the, really good lines in this film, yeah, like really memorable really... lines." Um, but then, see, it's like I don't really have a similar. Like, I I wasn't pulling the family dynamic and relationship into my family. It's quite different. But the thing I did notice was like the sibling relationship is very similar to the brother relationship in Sing Street. You sort of have the older, more rebellious sibling who sort mm-hmm. of wants to get out. In this case, she does. And um, was this? This must be one of the first films that um, Zoe Deschanel was in. 
Yeah. She is very young. This is a good, like, nine years before, like, 500 Days of Summer, for example. Yeah. Or New Girl. New Girl, yeah. Um, really young. And, but the rest of the cast is, like, well, Frances McDormand, she had already won her Oscar by the time she did this film, so... It's one of the confusingest things seeing uh, Jason Lee from My oh, Name Is Earl. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you fame. just that, yeah. And it's like one of those things, for the longest time, I was so confused, especially when I was younger, because he actually does look like Ryan Reynolds with the hair and the beard. <laughs> you can't unsee it. Oh, my god. And goodness, the way he sounds, yeah. too. Yeah. Jason Lee actually does sound... He's probably a bit deeper in a voice, but sure. actually has a relatively similar voice. But I, I, was, I was always like... Ryan would have been too young to be in this film. Like he just would have been, he would have been just that little too young. So it has to be someone else. And like, it's like Jason Lee. The two that really, I found interesting. First off, Jimmy Fallon. Yeah. I was like, whoa, okay. And he's not bad either. No, he's really good. He's not bad at all in this film. It was great. You know, the craziest, but he's in like Band of Brothers. Like really? He's in Steven Spielberg's Band of Brothers. (laughs) But it's Band of Brothers is like synonymous with, now he's a really annoying talk yeah, show host. It's synonymous with like crazy cameos, like like yeah. that have really good performances. That blew my the other one and, and this predates the office, of course, by years, but Rain Wilson has a bit to do in this film as well. Which yeah. I, I was like, Oh, that's Rain Wilson, that's great. Years before the office. Um yeah, great castle. And of course Frances McDormand, I mean, like like what more can I say and she's fantastic the dress she's wearing when she's like doing that lecturing class before she just like explodes mm-hmm. like a rock band stole my, my son, son. <laughs> was kidnapped my son I'm like what is she wearing but like her character you know what before I forget I gotta talk because it's not my her character's out of like the 50s like she's like such a quintessential yeah. 50s person and you know what I straight up didn't even think about it again because this is so removed from my own family but it's like the, there's no dad in the picture there's just no mention of it at all. It was so subtle, I didn't even like think about it. But yeah, she's a very 50s like housemaid, nuclear family mother, yeah. very protective and overbearing. But I would say, but it's like, yeah, but her character's not weak by any extent. No. Well, on the contrary, the scene, there's one scene in particular when she's on the phone with her son, and she she is so brilliant because it, it walks that line of funny and sad almost per line. She's in such control of her delivery. Of like she says a line fast enough to make it funny, and mm-hmm. then the next line slow enough to like make you like this is just tragic. It's, she is losing her grip on her kids, and power like it's really powerful because what that scene is, and it's one of the best scenes I reckon in the film. Not sure. a, not just yeah. that, but also the interaction he has later with um, I always forget the name of him. I'm just gonna quickly get it up. Russell's character Russell. Yeah, Russell. Like, right. her phone conversation with Russell. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Which is, like, that power dynamic starts to shift at that point. Oh, it's but, excellent. Um, it's very Malcolm in the middle sort of <laughs> dynamic the, shift. The earlier one, yeah, when she's, like, her tonality. She we becomes really get to see his how, mother for a minute. <laughs> we get to see us, but that scene where she's breaking down with William on the phone because she's yep. losing that grip. First off, we really see what she's capable of. Like, you got to remember, this is only a couple years after Fargo. This is, like, three years after Fargo. Yeah. So it's all well, like... At, the, at this point, she's very well renowned. Yeah, I know, but, but it's but like... Even in her little box in this film, she doesn't have a lot to do. But boy, does she... But she uses it. Yeah. She, yeah. And yeah. I love I love that scene because what it's teaching us is that that teenage short-sightedness, that mm-hmm. even someone is well-rounded, intellectual, and stable, and honestly, relatively in control for his age. Like, he still yeah. kind of gets swept up in it, but not in the... 
he doesn't do drugs or he doesn't get like he gets swept up in the mystique um the love the affirmation like sure. very conventional teenage but then also the job yeah you know he's he's trying to finish his job <laughs> but even in that even with one of the most grounded characters he's still not having any empathy for his mother because mm. at that point in time and maybe it's a give and take that like we do feel like she is a bit of a boa constrictor um to him but that's a result of being a single mother like yeah all she had for a period of time was her kids she raised her kids to be ethically and morally um uh good people and mm. they both inherently are but because of you know Deschanel leaving so early on it's like William becomes this sole pillar of expectation mm. for her and he gets suffocated by that so he's his his breakdowns in later parts of the films when he just feels like he just wants to go home and he's crying we see a kid crying yeah. and it's like it hurts because it's like this kid has been pushed he, he's been honestly tugged left right by his mother on one hand and being screwed around by Russell and the band who are yeah. just sort of drawing him out and not really valuing him. It's a moment Russell. where he realises he's kind of in over his head and, of course, he's, you know, he's 16 years old and he's on this, like, insane, very intense road trip, as any, you know, road trip would... Yeah. Or road trip, um, like, what's the word I'm thinking of? But, yeah, like a, a, mu- like a tour, music tour. Like, yeah. any tour would be this intense, like, almost claustrophobic thing that you all you have is those relationships you have with each other and he's always just removed enough from them where he's sort of like the cool kid but there's also that distance because they're too afraid of what he's actually going to write about them which that's like a great dynamic as well and then kate hudson sort of there's always that thing in the back of your head i think by the end of the film you realize you know when, when william has that big outburst of like you've all used and abused her you know and i i actually love her but you know, look what you've all done. I think up until that point, you're always wondering what her angle is. It always feels like there's something going on, but it, I think it ends up being quite pure, the love that she ends up having. Well, she has an earnest, but, yeah. but it's that whole mantra of uh, one of the, like, the, one of the most, because we're like William, and it doesn't matter, like, I watched this earlier this year sure. and watched it again this week, and it's like, you get swept up in the Penny Lane mystique because mm. at first she's like, oh, we're not groupies. We're not groupies. We're, we're band-aids, yeah. We're band-aids. We're these, uh, we're basically muses for these musicians. Mm. And then slowly over time, talk, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a, But slowly over time, we watch as each of these uh, band-aids sort of succumbs to that groupie mentality of being mm. sort of used and abused by the band. But Penny always stays a constant, and yeah. it's what makes that scene in New York so mm. <sighs> cold. It's cold. <laughs> yeah, it's... well, she says as much. She's like the last one standing almost. Everyone else has sort yeah. of gone on different pathways. Yeah. And I think I, I just, that is such a great revelation because you're right, there's a mystique there, and, and there's something about her. She's definitely like, you know, you've got like your Hitchcock blonde sort of mm. thing. I'm not saying that she's a Hitchcock blonde, but it's like, you can almost tell like Cameron Crowe was like, oh my God, when he met, when he met her, I was like, okay, you need to be in this film and you've, you've got something there. I actually read that she was meant to play the sister at one point. Yeah, she, she's got that real, um, oh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank 
Who's Uma Thurman? From yeah, Pulp yeah. Fiction. Sure, yeah. It's definitely fascination. That, well, it's that mark. It's the mark. Yeah, the mark. Even the marking or like yeah. marketing almost looks like identical in some. Like yeah, well, like, she's she's the poster. <laughs> yeah, like not even just the face one. There's another one that almost I think copies the Pulp Fiction poster. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I think that's actually on the Prime like thumbnail. The... I'll pull it up for you because that's that's how I watched the film. Of course, it was on Prime. It was included. But I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, almost famous. Yeah, it's very similar. She's sort of doing... A, it's flipped. It's reversed. Yeah. But it, it is the Uma Thurman sort of approach. It's the power the girl back, pose. Yeah. Like the mystique, the mystique and... Uh, not even... Well, and ironically, they both end up kind of succumbing to a same sort of OD too. Like, yeah, that's true. They both sort um, of have a, a, a scare. A drug episode. Um... <laughs> So I and I definitely think that there was probably some sort of homage in there. Um, but yeah, it's, definitely. It's, it's one yeah. of those things. You know, it's really funny. You made a joke off the air about um, Last Waltz, and it's like we're sure, sort of exploring yeah. the backstage nature of of a band and a rock band in the seventies, and and it's kind of cool because you like you can easily take those Scorsese excerpts of talking to Robbie Robertson and, and, and leave on helm and stuff like that. Almost apply especially them to when, this fictional when Scorsese band. talks about, ask them about the drugs and the women and leave on <laughs> helms very much like, we're not talking about that. Like we're not going to, we're not going to discuss that any further. Yeah. And you're sort of like, Oh, uh, and then this sort of kind of explores what was really going on behind stage. Mm. Sort of like, like guys, like um, band managers in the back, um, moving band-aids around like chess pieces <laughs> um, when they're gambling. Oh, man. Like, which is just... Could look very inappropriate, but 100% would have been happening at the time. Yeah, well, this is this is the lifestyle. I think that's what's so brilliant about the coming-of-age angle of this film is you have a boy with... You know, granted, a lot of these moral... The moral compass has been passed on by his overbearing mother. Yeah. But he comes in, and to your, to your point, what you were saying earlier, he doesn't really succumb to the drugs or, or that lifestyle he's very much still himself and it's like he does i guess lose his virginity at one point that that does sort of but it, it play out it's almost but fun, it, funny with things like like that janky driveway scene and it's mm. it's kind of like it's it obviously it's blocked pretty well but it because of its elongated ramp that leads into the stadium it's like <laughs> alice going into the rab like down the rabbit hole yeah and yeah. getting sucked into a world that's completely foreign that he off oh, like much like Alice is often just an observer to yes. the world that she's gone into. Um, he, only he almost I'm trying to think if he actually does actively affect the plot in any way, shape, other than I guess Kate Hudson sort of some of her decision making. But I guess she would have more agency than him in the story, especially at the end when Russell. Yeah, goes well, that's to her. Address. Address. I reckon she just has her own coming of age re- revelations, yeah. and she is the one that incites. Yeah the change with Russell going to his address. I mean, if anything, he is often just an observer of the world because he, he's always looking for that interview with Russell and he never quite gets it. I mm, mean, yep. all these experiences are fantastical and we often, like, find that he's doing chores or doing getting caught by, um, the like, after losing the virginity and mm. having to take everyone's clothes and stuff. <laughs> and It's sort of like... He tries to stand up for himself as well and hard cut <laughs> to him. The film's got some funny cuts, and there's one. Before I forget it, there's one, probably like the one of the funniest, like probably the funniest joke I've ever seen, is when she's like trying to talk to him through the moving bus. Of like, oh, your mother left a message. She said you have to call him, call her back immediately. And then 
just hits the wall. It is such a perfect burn. Oh, like, that is perfect slapstick yeah. comedy right there. Because it's just part of the same camera position. Yeah. Just like we pass the wall, boom, she runs right into it. And, and it almost happens to William too at the airport. But that's obviously they're playing it a bit more seriously. They don't want to just yeah. smack his head on the glass. But um, but to your, yeah, to that point, I think he doesn't do he doesn't cause much change in the band specifically. The band again, they have this interesting relationship with him where he's there and he's kind of cool and hip, but they're hesitant about what he's going to write. And sometimes they let their guard down. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they verbally abuse him yeah. and accuse him of things. Um. But it's ultimately... So we go to the example where he actually... He delivers, um, I guess, the story. But because the band denies 90% of it, he's not going to get the story. The thing that ultimately changes that is a decision that Kate Hudson makes. And now she probably makes that decision because of... On the plane... I imagine her being on the plane, sort of pondering and realizing, is her remembering that Will confesses I love you to her. That's what I'm imagining she's realizing okay. on the plane when she goes to wave at him. So I don't think any of that would happen if not for that scene. The I mm-hmm. guess you would call it an overdose scene. Yeah. But other than that, you're right. I think he doesn't have much agency because he's he's like a pawn in this big open world. Well, he's a kid. He's a kid. He doesn't and have I, much agency. And that's the biggest thing is is yet he often carries himself with the most maturity. I mean, yes. the interactions he has with like I mean when we hear Jason Lee's character who's the the front man and the ego of the front man and oh, the, with the shirt, the out of faker shirt. Oh, it's just, <laughs> don't you just like wince at that scene when it comes up and you see it and you're like, Oh, I know what's going to happen here. Yeah. <laughs> Best line of it. I, the, the follow-up line to that reveal that I love is Russell being like, can we just skip over the, or- the, oh, yeah. the obvious awkwardness of this and pretend like, and just laugh about it. Yeah. He's like, you would laugh about that. <laughs> like it's just, Amazing. I love I love the following scene when he's he's they're being careful they don't want to say too much in front of Will but then he's like you know what I'm gonna say it anyway and then, what's the line he says where he's basically my job is to get the whole crowd like hard and mm. he's like actually you know what you you should write that in <laughs> yeah. or to get them off it's to get them off that's get them right off. It's yeah. like, if I see one person in the crowd my job is to get them off and you could put that in the story <laughs> yeah. it's really good it's and it's, it's one of those things that it's what I like about it is at first. It's like that thing, like William almost writes the, the, the article at the end because he hits his boiling point and it's almost out of anger and revenge. Yeah. Um, but it's one of the, like in those, we're obviously seeing this this band sort of unravel and, and just like the trials and tribulations of being on the road and replacing their manager with a more commercial manager so there's yep. no loyalty. There's every piece that needs to kind of be in there for their own self-destruction, is there. So it's not like William doesn't enable all of it. It's all... He's just observing it. He's exactly. actually he's adhering yeah. his uh, his hero's advice in Philip Seymour Hoffman. And can we just say, although people like Philip Seymour Hoffman and Francis McDormand, they don't have massive roles in this, God, they use every second that they're in. These yeah, no, they're super impactful. Like, the I and, and what's so cool is that those roles especially, and like with Philip Seymour, he has that... Thing of like, oh, well, you this see, is I, the I, film I, that makes me miss him the most. Oh, because he's yeah. just so entertaining. Yeah, and his like kind of delirium, like his post mortal delirium. Yeah, well, that's another hard cut joke that was really funny is when he's saying like, okay, what well, you know, time to go, kid. Like, I've got, I can't talk to all of my fans, and then hard cuts them in the cafe. Yeah, still talking, but there's like an authentic love that he cares about, almost like a pupil 
of like, hey, here's a kid that's actually got something. Oh, they're actually, you know, traveling now. I'm going to give them his advice. I think it all comes back to, I mean, the key, and again, this is all the coming of age story and what, what we're actually learning. Mm-hmm. It's about honesty and, and truthfulness and true emotions and true feelings and true friendships. Because first off, they say he looks honest a lot, which is almost like the the emotional, um, not misguidedness, but like their shields are down because of he looks honest, quote unquote. Mm. Um, but then it is, I think there is, it is a quote, what's real? Oh, there's a quote, don't you have any regular fancy, um, him, William talking to, to obviously Penny Lane, of how much of this is like an artificial mm-hmm. chase and like is, is is the love that she's presenting to this band unrequited and I, I guess it is to an extent mm. um there's obviously a bit of a love triangle thing going on mostly behind the curtains behind the scenes mm. well even even like william knocking on the door he's not able to get his interview and you know go away go away we're busy a lot of the times we don't see we're seeing from william's perspective not seeing what's going on behind the door specifically yeah. well we know but we know like obviously she has a relationship with russell like yeah. a sexual relationship and we're we're well aware that I think they don't want the girlfriends to know. As, yeah, as he to, says. she's a muse, and yeah. but she's a muse in the sense of much like a groupie is. It's it's the songs may be about her, but she doesn't gain the the satisfaction. Like, and it's sort of like you know you can argue things like yeah, a lot of all three of the John Carney films really tap into that muse mm. emotion stuff, um, and obviously the the I think the underlying point of the film is each of these have a coming-of-age journey, but a different principle that they all learn. Sure. So for Russell, it's accountability. And, um, you know, for William, it's it's that first thing that you do when you go out as an adult into the real world. You sort of just explore the good and the bad and the ugly and mm-hmm. and sort of understand that the world isn't a fantastical tale all the time, but it can be it's more about at his age, just at his age at that time it is what he's been granted from his mum, especially is the chance for to experience. Yeah. And she saw, obviously she saw like a high culture experience for William, <laughs> like, you know, go traveling in Europe and, or like go explore in like museums. Like, yeah. It's not the ideal <laughs> get, no, getaway she wanted for her son, but inherently it's what he achieves. It's just, a diff- it's honestly it's popular he explores popular culture rather than high culture and well it's it's the culture that he's so ingrained in like he wants to be a part of this musical scene and and, and be a journalist in this in this world and being thrown headfirst into the reality of it it's like that's the journey he needs to go on as a character because if he goes on that high class journey to europe that what is there to really gain from that not nearly as much as this, you know, as this tour would do for him. Yeah, and it's one of those things. It's like so even like the one of the last, like in the back end of the film when he meets up with Zoe Deschanel, and they sort of have that. That's so sweet. That it's scene. such a powerful yeah. scene because what it really is, it's about birds leaving the nest to experience the world, and it's about a you know a mother bird accepting that. And for the other two characters, like Russell and, and Penny Lane, it's it's about sort of accepting their maturity and, and actions and consequences and, and starting to have accountability and agency in their life. And mm-hmm. whether that means it's a musician that's actively pursuing the art of music making, not getting swept up in his sort of rock persona, which he sort of yeah. is at that point in time, which is a hallmark of his immaturity. Though it's not as overt as like Jason Lee's character, who is constantly goes on rants about himself and his 
work ethic. To, to say Russell band. is a mature character, he's not. I mean, he goes and gets drunk <laughs> with a bunch of teenagers and nearly like like he yeah jumps off the himself, roof, <laughs> screaming he's a god. Like <laughs> Russell was by far like, and I think that's what makes it so powerful that final scene sitting in William's bedroom and having that. It's so quiet in comparison. Yeah. To all the noise, yeah. And all the noise. Yeah. And it's one of those things that it's like they're almost both grounded back in their um their teenage state of mind, so it's just two people talking to each other. And Well even just like him walking into quote unquote the enemy's bedroom. Yeah. And he's just like, This is where you sleep and it's like all the posters on the wall. Yeah. It's like that's a fan. You know, and it's like at all the thoughts he must have in the back of his head about all the suspicions of William Surely they all like fade and fither away at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a great thing because you're it's because it's about the art. That's what it is about. Yeah, and, and it's about the love for the art. And that's the, that's the one question he gets in in his interview is like, "What do you love about music?" And he's like, "Well, everything." So, I think you're right. I think it all ties into the yeah. the art of the music, I guess. And that's it. It's everything. Everything. Yeah. The people reporting on it. The people that are muses to other people, and the people that write and create said yeah. music it, every part of art is important like well it's all relative that's the well it is thing. it's like you know and we can take this in any form or medium of art I mean is a film you know if we want to get meta metacritical mm. is a is a, a what like we've now just like we have devised a science and a, and a logical thought or like thought patterns of what makes a good film what makes a bad film mm. We didn't make the film. We sit here every week and talk about why we think this film's good or this film's not good or sure. what's good about this film, what's not good about this film, and oh. and we're not we weren't involved in making any of them. Well, for the most part, and it's like one of those things that it's like so us reporting on it and discussing this film is just as is is another valuable element, and it's not something that should be rejected or crit- like critiqued. And it's funny the bands disappear their disposition in mm. their Stillwater's disposition on, on musical journalists. They call them the enemy yet without their praise, mm. they don't gain popularity. They don't gain popularity from just going from venue to venue to venue. Like the, the, at the time in the seventies, you required the appraisal of institutes like the Rolling Stone. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a necessary evil of like, yeah, word of mouth can only get you so far. You're right, especially in the 70s. Yeah. You know, it is part of the, you know, oh, the Rolling Stone, like, oh my God, we're going to be on the cover and like, it, it's going to be this big publicity thing and what they say matters, not necessarily to us, but to the audience yeah. and that will ultimately affect us. I mean, this this film shows the soul of music, I mm. think, the the living, breathing organism that is music in a time of musical revolution, like that shows the power of it to unify people. And I mean, it's, it's all summed up in probably like the seminal scene that this film's known for, right? which is the, the two of us tiny dancer scene, which happens at one of the band's lowest points. Yeah. It's when Russell like shamelessly walks out of, or shamefully Said he's walks quit, out he's of He's quit the band. Right. And he's walked out of the house party in the morning and, and it's like just that that music brings them back together in that moment. Yeah. And like only having just seen the film, I didn't know that that was like the seminal scene, but it makes complete perfect sense to me that it is. Yeah. Because it, it's such a perfect placement in the film and the journey of that the band collectively is yeah. going through. I mean, that's like the most powerful scene, isn't it? Like he yeah. has to go home and, and Kate Hudson or Penny Lane goes, oh, you are home. 
And yeah, that's that yeah. real fantastical nature. That's when it really becomes... That's the pure sort of parallel it draws to something like Alice in Wonderland. Like, she finds... Though out of place at first, she does eventually, depending on what version you're so she finds herself absorbed into the world and comfortable in that world mm. of utter wackiness and crazy and confusion. <laughs> and I think the intensity that of those yeah, relationships, yeah, like that fantastical nature. And, and I think that's so that's such a powerful uh, moment um, that really shows kind of exactly what I'm talking about because you see the that unification that comes with each different member and such. So yeah, it's. It's just an amazing film. Yeah, I think like like yeah, just I I think I said it to you before we started recording. Like it's all, and you said it. You're like I don't even know where to begin with this film because a lot happens in those two hours, but there's just a lot that it um like thematically there's just a lot of ideas in terms of expressionism and like people being truthful to themselves and to each other and like almost the art the artificialness of what happens in the band and there's a lot going on there and even like yeah. plot wise and um the one thing i loved as well the the only thing i knew ahead of time is i read in the trivia fact that there was like all oh, the near uh fatal plane thing was like something that happened to cameron crow and he wanted to include in films so i was like okay i knew going into the film like okay there's some sort of like a uh, plane's gonna have like a i guess electrical malfunction or something or other um the crazy but, scene. Yeah, but it pl- it plays in so well to that point where they all just sort of dish out how they're really, truly feeling in that moment. Mm-hmm. And, like, the first admission... I don't know if it was Russell who's the first one to say, like, I just want to say I love you guys you know, if we all die right now. And then I was like, oh, wow, this is really cool. This is going to be a great moment of them to really show appreciation. And then it slowly turns into not quite so much. <laughs> but, a lot of animosity. Yeah. A lot of, lot of uh, feuds being held internally yeah. in that one. Um, but yeah, again, going back to this, that, that idea of truthfulness and honesty. And I think that again, to go into that last scene where Russell finally gets to see Williams, like this is his bedroom. This is his home. This is his family. He meets his mother and his sister. Um, it's just a great flip yeah, and a great note to end the I film. I mean, it's on. really the power of perception is this, like mm. this film really has that really strong, sort of I um, focus on identity, but more perception, how we perceive each other and how we see each other's value. And, and the reality is we always should be looking more inwards than outwards, mm-hmm. like what of other people think. So, you know, Penny's always obsessed with what Russell thinks of her. Russell cares what William thinks of him, but only from the perspective of... What he could write about him, yeah. ...benefit, yeah. So it's all about not even giving a true essence to what we... And we only get a real insight into Russell's sort of backstory in little subtext things when he's talking to Frances McDormand on the on the phone, mm. because she kind of just tears him apart from a from an intellectual point of view, but from yeah. a psychological point of view, in the sense that he doesn't know how to reply, and he no, goes pale, yeah, because he's completely called out because his charm's thrown away. It's not about his charm or his mystique, and without his music, he really is just this scared immature boy who probably left home at William's age to pursue music yeah. over something of the high arts or high like tertiary education. Is, he, that interaction with Francis McDormand, that is probably the only character in the entire film that isn't either like a diehard fan, like dying for his approval or someone like within the band that, you know, is essentially a peer and an equal to him. It's the one person he talks to that's not like a predetermined fan. Yeah. It's actually, it's an actual honest to God critic. 
and he just gets absolutely annihilated verbally. It makes their later <laughs> scene better, though. Oh my it, god, it has so much like more context because, especially as he realizes who he's talking to. Yeah, and it's sort of like one of those things that again, I love the way she interacts in that scene because she then just almost goes into mother mode, yeah, like being more caring and and not as not as like obviously as aggressive or. or on the back foot or trying to like tear down his defenses. It, it's more a, a comforting interaction. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's yeah, not antagonistic that, at no. all. It's, it's like, there's almost like a weird sense of appreciation there. Not, not maybe not appreciation, but you're right. There's a warmth to was a closure. Yeah. And he's actually listened, him. kind of listened to what she said. He's yeah. being accountable. He respects her. He, he, yeah. you can tell he really respects her. He yeah. says, yes, ma'am on the phone. <laughs> it is really interesting. Because it is sort of like one of those things, and I think you know we we can, you know, you can talk about it, but it's like when you meet your idols or these people that you hold in such high regard. When you meet musicians and you know these people that perform to tens of thousands of people, and you realize they're just people, it's a yeah, very weird yeah. moment, and we don't all get to experience it with musicians that are like can perform. Yeah, you know, we got the opportunity to meet one of our favorite bands, mm-hmm. and then. Spend all day thinking of everything we we're going to ask them, and then we got in there, and our brains just went. Then <laughs> everything we thought we were going to ask them went out the window. No, because at that at that point, it's not that we didn't know they were real people, but as soon as you get in that environment, it just becomes a conversation with people. Yeah, and it almost very rarely actually goes into the musical aspect. I don't think, other than with the exception to Ollie with the wine song, I didn't talk to any of them about the music. Yeah, which was. You're right, almost shocking. But once you're in that environment, it becomes a different. Well, you're not conducting dynamic. an interview. Exactly, exactly. You're talking to a person, and when you start to talk to the person behind that mystique, that aura, that you know, they're no longer you're no longer looking up at them on the stage or looking across from backstage to them. It's it's a two hander. It's it's a conversation. Yeah, like they're just as equal as you are, and you. I think we always lose that part because we get so caught up with. Really, the actual power of music, which this film heavily underlies. Well, it's funny because there's a scene where William actually does do that switch where he finally sits down to interview one of the band members and he asks all those questions of like, okay, what about this song? What was the inspiration for this? And do you need to be a, do you need to be in love to write lives? He starts asking all those questions and he's like shocked. He's it's like, Russell, oh. yeah. Yeah, it is, yeah. He's, Russell's like, oh my God, that, that you're actually you're a journalist now. <laughs> you're actually asking these questions like because the dynamic has been so different up until he has to ask him about the music specifically. Mm. It's, yeah, it's interesting. No worries. Well, would you like to move into highlight scene, Jake? I, I would, I would. What was your highlight scene? My highlight scene, I alluded to a little earlier, and has to be the uh, the uh, the inner crossing scene, or the inner cutting scene, I should say, between the 1973 graduating class with Francis McDormand attending, even though his son's not even there. And, of course, that's inner cut with William... Um, I think it's a little earlier, but it's the scene, obviously, William confesses his love to Penny Lane. Lady Goodman, as her name ends up being, it's all good, man. Um, I just, I really appreciated it because it's like, those two scenes on paper don't necessarily make too much sense to be put together, but emotionally, it does glue it together really well because it's like, this whole time there is that almost a ticking clock that William needs to get home to graduation needs to get home to his mother and even though his mother's still there supporting his absence at the Mm. graduation and it's like we're really seeing how deep far down the rabbit hole William's gone you know the the Alice in Wonderland rabbit hole Mm. as you would call it 
um, especially with with Penny Lane, that relationship they've built there. Um, what a great journey! What a great odyssey! What a fantastic film! Zeke, what's your highlight scene? For it's a toughie. It's a toughie, isn't it? Because mm. um, there is actually a ridiculous amount to choose from here that I love. I I I have to say, from an entertainment point of view, I'm I'm gonna opt for. I got two. I'll probably, I'm just going to go with <laughs> go two. Go with two. It's like, I really like the, the Russell days. Teenage Party in, like, oh, collection cool. scene with, cool, the, with, yeah. the, with the, particularly the, the pool jumping part because it's funny, but it also does have that real underlying tone of you can only, like, like what William's observing is he could be observing this rock star dying sure. in a very silly manner. There is a fear of death there, yeah. And there is a genuine fear of death. And... I think that's like one of those things that, you know, like, he's sort of in his head, he's going, like, wow, what if, what if something terrible happens here? And, and how do we, how do we sort of deal? Like, and he's really grasping the there, immaturity yeah. and lack of self-control that someone like Russell has, who up until this point has been this sort of cool, calm, collected character with mm. mystique. So we're really, that's the first time we really see the volatile immaturity that he sort of ironically, you know, he's been echoed, don't do drugs, and at first we think, oh, that's just the product of uh, the teenagers around him. He's 16, around with 18-year-olds, and, and they're all just, like, getting into that level of immaturity. Yet mm. we see this far more grown-up man acting the exact same as all these teenagers around him, yeah. if not worse. And well, yeah, because he's, he's been so warmly invited into this party. Yeah. And it's like, the moment you have some teens in a car, be like, you should come to our party, man. Like... The correct answer is very clearly yeah. no, but he's like, he's in that, vol- not volatile, but like, uh, well, he's at a low point. Yeah. And he's like, okay, sure, let's do it. <laughs> and I'd probably say the, the Francis McDormand Russell phone call. Oh my God. Very, wonderful. really, real shows are acting chops. Both are acting chops in that scene. So, yeah, absolutely. No worries. Well, Almost Famous is out on Amazon Prime, did you say? Yes, it is included with Prime. You can also rent and buy it from Prime. And YouTube and all of that good stuff. Beautiful. Well, speaking of streaming platforms, Jake, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week? Um, kind of a big week. I'm going to talk about Netflix for a bit. There's some stuff coming to Netflix I'm very excited about. Uh, so, Our Father is a documentary that sees a woman discover through a DNA test that she has multiple half-siblings. And uh, this reminds me of Tickled a little bit because this leads into a, a deeper, more shocking revelation about a sickening scheme involving a fertility doctor. I saw a bit of the trailer for this. Dude, this looks wild. This really? is mad tickle vibes, yeah. Ooh. Looks awful, man. Like, I cannot wait to watch this. It's, a, I think, a 90-minute docker coming to Netflix this week. So I really mm. want to shout that one out because that looks awesome. Yeah, well, Tickled was fantastic. Yeah. Oh, Tickled was great. That's way back in our very early days we mm. talked about Tickle um, on the first half of the show. Um, let's see. You've also got Senior Year, which sees Rebel Wilson as a high school cheerleader who wakes up from a coma 20 years after the fact. And uh, now she has to return to high school and reclaim her position as the prom queen. Eh, it looks okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like Rebel Wilson, so that's a tough sell for me. Sure. Yeah, no. No, if you're, if you're not a fan of her, then you're probably not going to very much enjoy <laughs> this film. You've got The Revenant coming to Disney+, Plus, which is exciting. Coming to Amazon Prime, which we just talked about, you have films like No Time to Die, Casino Royale, Doctor No, Die Another Day, Diamonds Are Forever, From Russian With Love. You get the picture. You get the theme that's going on here. 
You also got Halloween Kills, which comes to Amazon Prime and Binge this week. So there you go. You've got a couple of ways to, to watch that. And coming to cinemas this week, we have... <laughs> we have Father Stew, which sees Mark Wahlberg as the titular character, an amateur boxer, whose injury leads to a new path as a Catholic priest. Um, wow. That's not something I'd ever expect. I don't think Mark Wahlberg... He Okay, I'm going to say this. That sounds like the worst casting choice for Mark Wahlberg, and he literally just played Victor Sullivan in an Uncharted movie. <laughs> you think that's the joke now? He's just going... He, he's deliberately going for the most miscast movies. I, I'm starting to get that sense. <laughs> oh, my God. That's awful. Now, Zeke, I'm about to read a few more log lines. Now, which of these three films is not a documentary? Okay. Okay, this is a little quiz I want to play with now. All right, so I'm going to read them. This Much I Know to be True follows the creative relationship between Nick Cave and Warren Ellis, as well as the songs from their past two studio albums, Ghosting and Carnage. We have Bigger Than Us, which sees uh, um, Melody Wilson, I believe that's how you pronounce the name, travel the world to meet young activists. And finally, you have Firestarter, which sees a young girl try to understand how she mysteriously gained the powers to see see things on fire. I must have miswrote this, but to set things on fire with her mind. Which of these is not a documentary? Not a documentary. Yes. <laughs> so it's the Nick Cave one's a doco. Yep. Um, you're correct. So I'm down to the other two. This well, much I know to be true is a doco. So yeah, uh, bigger than us and Firestarter. So she sets things alight with her mind. Yes. That's a doco. You tried to misdirect me. <laughs> no, Firestarter is a horror film. Ah. <laughs> that was mean. Because you make it out like it was... That, they, it was, they, it was they, not they, a trick question. That was the that was the trick. Mysteriously gains the power to set things on fire with her mind. <laughs> I don't know. It could have been like a magical thing. <laughs> like, what's the... Yeah. I, 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 li- I like that, though. Because, like, if you told me that was a documentary, I'd be like, holy crap, that sounds like a great documentary. What was the point of that? I would have 100% thought that, naturally. I think you were just trying to trick me. Uh, it was a double trick. It was a double, double I trick. I feel so betrayed. Oh, I'm sorry, Zeke. I'm sorry. Tell you what, we can watch this much I know to be true. Let's do that. But um, Firestarter looks... And it looks like a modern-day horror film. That's literally all I have to say about it. But, Zeke, that is all that is coming to cinemas and streaming this week beautiful well it is time for us to move into the 1990s jake Ooh, traveling through time the decade retrospective Mm. like i said 1990s we had two films that we thought was going to be another tight contest yes was not i don't think we've ever picked two drastically different (laughs) films tonally (laughs) They're actually usually pretty like spot. Sometimes like it's like a western versus a s- not maybe not. Well, to be fair, they both have heads in places that they shouldn't have heads. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> Look at the sound wave of me just spitting this there. <laughs> so the two films that went up against each other were, of course, Toy Story and Seven, both from 1995. Um. <laughs> Drastically different films, like yep. like you said, with boxes and heads. Um, in, in places they shouldn't be. Yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> now, at first, it was actually looking like a, it was very much like, okay, one vote here, one vote here, one vote there, one vote there. It was looking pretty tied up. I think yours, your version of the vote was a bit more decisive. All up, the vote was 24 to 12, so it was literally double the amount went to Toy Story. Sergeant? Yes, sir. Establish a recon post downstairs. Code red, repeat. We are at code red. Recon plan, Charlie. Execute. Move, 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 move. It's a... It's a big one. Walt Disney Pictures presents... Star Command, come in. Do you read me? The story of two toys. Oh. There seems to be no sign of intelligent life anywhere. Hello? Oh, yeah. ah! Headed for a showdown. My name is Woody... This is my spot. I am Buzz Lightyear. I come in peace. You are a child's plaything. You are a sad, strange little man. And playing by their own rules. Draw. Fuck me again. I don't like confrontations. Buzz, look an alien. Where? You're mocking me, aren't you? wingspan very good <laughs> oh what what you can't fly yes i can can't can can't can't can the adventure takes off when toys come to life to infinity and beyond toy story look out can Woody, a good-hearted cowboy doll, feels that his position as Andy's favorite toy is threatened when an action figure named Buzz Lightyear joins the scene. Not so, gonna lie, obviously hmm. we're not gonna jump into what the next poll is, but we've kind of lined this up pretty well because obviously with Lightyear coming out this year, yeah, I forgot about that. Toy Story was the probably more adept choice. There's nothing from Fincher coming out this year, right? So, no, um, I think oh, I think he just wrapped a film. Okay. But I'll be surprised if that came out this year. Yeah. So, ends up, I haven't watched Toy Story in God knows how long. I think I did rewatch all three of them before we watched four. And speaking of which, that this actually marks the first, this is the first time ever on the podcast league. Mm. First time in history we've ever done a film of the week in which we've already done one of its sequels in the past. We did Toy Story 4 way back in episode 23, 24. Um, around that period, a very, very long time ago, and now we've actually gone back to do the original Toy Story. Yeah, crazy. I can't imagine, but there wouldn't be any other films that we'd be able to do that with, right? Like, um, the only ones off the top of my head, John Wick. We only did part three because that only films that we did like um, very early on. Well, early on, but also contemporary, like as they released. Like, Another one would be Spider Man. We did Far From Home and No Way Home, but we never did Homecoming because mm. obviously we weren't doing the show then. Um, off the top of my head, what's the more recent one we did? Usually we do it the other way around. Like when we did Back to the Future, we obviously make sure it's the first one. We kind of talked about it as a whole trilogy, but mostly covered the first one. You know what? I actually kind of want to just do a quick scroll through our Spotify account. I can't imagine that being that. That'd be it. Which also Not sounds like many. it's an early days thing, which which sounds like something we would do because early days, um, we probably had a few more bugs in the old system that we were. Well, not even so much bugs, but it's just like so much was coming. Twenty nineteen was a gigantic year for mm. film, so we just had so much coming out. We didn't have time to go back and 
retro like a you know avengers endgame it's like we weren't going to do all the avengers movies leading up to it sure i guess you could count a lot of those avengers like a lot of the superhero films just mcu period yeah Yeah. which i i would be shocked if we ended up ever doing them going back even toy story like i just thought it would be fun to put it in there and obviously you thought it'd be fun to put it up against seven that's okay (laughs) well uh um, let's we'll uh get back to the answer i reckon uh next week because you've got 180 there's a lot here the other one I would be a fan of this. We've done the Lion King 2019. I would be a fan of doing the original Lion King instead. Dumb thing to do. <laughs> there are episodes that are like, you just, like, at least Uncharted, it's like this standalone property, but like, why do we even bother with that? Do we yeah. just have nothing on that week? Um, I thought, I mean, probably. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we just done Book Smart, so we covered that ground, and then, I don't know. It Chapter 2, we never did the first It or the original 90s It, so that's another one. And you're right. I think that now that we're in sort of year two, I'm not really seeing it anymore. Like we've stopped sort of covering sequels, for example. No worries. Well, until then, in case there's any more answers, we'll get back to you next week. Thank you for joining us for the Cinema (laughs) Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with Toy Story. You got a friend in me.